Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. We're going to be back in Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 2 this time. I'm going to give you a, 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 um, a brief review. If you weren't here last week, it's okay. We started in chapter 1, and um, we accomplished some things. We started kind of a series. We kind of named the series for the book of Philippians, Partners in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a way of introduction to that, um, what we did was we talked about uh, Philippi, it was founded by Philip II as a, as a Greek colony. Later it was conquered in uh, 167 BC by the Romans. And um, it became part of this Macedonian um, uh, province in Rome. And, and because of its location and because of its wealth, it was an important city. As a matter of fact, uh, it is in Acts, we, we find Paul being called in a dream and a vision, come over and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And uh, so God prepared the city, but the city itself still was full of sinners that were not going to receive the gospel well. And so we'd love to be the kind of Christians that when we think about Christianity, we think about it idealistically, almost like it's kind of a Christianized Disney movie where we know everything's going to work out okay. And we do know that everything's going to work out okay. So in one respect, that's true, right? We know that when our race is run, we will be with our Lord and that we will, uh, he will set all things right and we will be with him for eternity. So in that sense, it will. But in the meantime, and as the letter was written to the, to the Philippians, uh, to those at Philippi, uh, things were going to be rough. And they continued to be rough, not only for Paul and his missionary team, but also for uh, the church itself. And so the letter was, was uh, church was established during Paul's second missionary journey. He was revisited on his third, and there were numerous converts that you can see in Acts chapter 16 who were brought in, varying different kinds of status and, and, uh, and, and, and background. And the, the book is believed to have been written during one of Paul's imprisonments late in life. So possibly at Caesarea, tradition says Rome, but it could be either one of those. Uh, the point is not so much where he's in prison, but the fact that he's in prison for the sake of the gospel. And this is, this is part of his life. Uh, the letter is addressed to all the saints that are in Christ. And we talked about last week that this unity that we have in Christ is supernatural. It is through the conversion experience and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we are united together, which we're going to expand on uh, a little bit more today. We're united together because of something God did in us. Not because of something we did or because of something that is um, uniquely better than another human being, but because God chose to to demonstrate his pleasure and his love and his mercy on us. It's very humbling and it's a blessing. So Paul's exhortation is for them to live righteously. And he encourages them and calls them partners in the ministry of the gospel. Not just partners passively. He, he, he gets beaten and thrown in prison at the founding of the church and they're attending to his needs, not just then, 
but they continue to do so throughout Paul's ministry. And Paul speaks about that in the book to Philippians, and it's, it's a blessing to see that. So uh, Paul's exhorting them to live righteously. He wants them to trust in the sufficiency of Christ, even during very, very different times. Uh, the three things that we kind of focused on last week were it was a cause for this partnership that we have in the gospel ministry. It's a cause for rejoicing. It, it not only reminds us of our own salvation, it reminds us that God is not done bringing, calling his elect and bringing people to faith in Christ. So that there are sinners out there that need the gospel. You may be here today and you may say, you know, I was invited to come. I'm glad to be here, but I've really never got that deep into Christianity. It's not been something that's been, you know, the center of my life. It's kind of always been on the peripheral edge. And you may have been raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were both Christians, uh, took me to church every Sunday. I had a profession of faith when I was a child, but at 18 years old, I was very, very lost. And I knew I was lost because I enjoyed sinning. I enjoyed living a rebellious, evil life, and I did not want to hear the Bible. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to partner with any Christian. I wanted to do my own thing. So was the prayer real when you were a child? Seemed real at the time, but the life bore out the fact that it was a counterfeit. Not because we're saved by works, but because when God does something supernatural in you, you can't reverse it. It's done to you by grace, and he keeps you by grace. Remember the passage where he says, no one's going to fall out of the Father's hands, right? Once we're in the hand of God, we're never going to utterly fall away. And so you say, well, why does God allow people to go through these difficult times in life? I don't know. I'm not God, but I can't say this. For me personally, it shook me out of the road I was going down to destruction. It shook me. That sin and the destruction that follows sin shook my life. It shook my thinking. It shook my decision making. And it caused me to say yes to a friend that said, please come to church. We've been praying for you. And I went and I heard the gospel. So the young high school girl that invited some pagan at a football game to come back to church, come on, come to church. We're saving a seat. She was a partner in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You understand there's no age gap. There's no education requirements. If you're in Christ, you're a partner in the gospel. And it is your responsibility, not just a responsibility, it is your mission in life that that becomes a preeminent part of the way you think. And because of the way you think, it becomes a way that you behave. We also talked about advancing, that this partnership advances the gospel and also that it strengthens the body. And the scripture that is left off, why, why is all this needed? Well, Paul tells us in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. So today's study, we're going to pick up in chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 18. And we're going to continue with this theme of partnership in the gospel. So the first thing that we want to add to our list that we just talked about was really, is really kind of more of an expansion on the list. And that is that this partnership in the gospel uh, is the results of a unity of mind and emotion. 
It's a unity in the way we think and the way we feel. So I'll, I'll give you an example. How did the worship part of our service make you think and because of the way you thought, how did it make you feel? Well, I was really kind of distracted, George. No, it's really important. It really is important for you to examine these things. The scriptures say, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. Okay, these admonitions are not just tossed out there for no reason. They're tossed out there because we have an enemy that wants to distract us, pervert, and corrupt the gospel. It's important that we understand the truth about this partnership. Is it one of 10 partnerships? I had a missionary, um, ex-missionary, I say, I don't like the word ex, but he was a former missionary, uh, college professor who was teaching a missions class when I was in school. And he said that they were really excited about someone. They came to church and they, they came forward and, and prayed and accepted the gospel and, and, and were willing to be baptized. They were so excited about this, though, they went to visit him in his home. And he had placed some type of an icon. I can't remember if it was a cross or if it was something else or a picture of Jesus that he found. But he had placed that on his idol shelf. And he had with that, next to that idol, about seven other idols. And in his mind, since he was a polytheist, he's from Japan, worshiped many gods uh, through ancestor worship or through, through other religions that are prominent there, he thought he could just add Jesus to the shelf and all would be well. And they had to start from scratch. And they had to say, no, you don't understand. This is an exclusive, exclusive relationship. There's a unity of mind that cannot accept other anti-Christian or non-Christian thoughts into that process. It corrupts the thinking. So the love of material things, the desire and lust for riches and for pleasure, these are not consistent with the life of Christianity. We'll get to that in a little bit as it relates to culture. But let's look at verses 2, 1 through 2, and let's see what what, what is being said or what is being taught. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ... And there is. Any comfort from love? Yes, there is. Any participation, that word means fellowship, in the spirit? There is. Any affection and sympathy? And there is. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That is the Christian culture. So remember, we put that at the backdrop. The reason why I read that that verse from from chapter 1 was to remind us. He's writing to people that are going through difficult times. They are partners in the gospel, even to the point of suffering for the cause of the gospel. And he's reminding them and and continues to weave in this, this issue of those that that were rivals, those that were preaching Christ out of rivalry and conceit, that they, they had opposition there. They had, they had something that they needed to understand that was unique about Christianity, that was unique about the way they were, what they were saved to, what they were regenerated from, and what they were born again to. And that is 
this unity in mind and emotion. Our minds, the way we think, and the way we feel most certainly drives our behavior. It's not the other way around. I, you know, you, you see people that are guilty of something, they'll go, well, I don't know how it happened, it just happened. No. We all know that's a lie, don't we? Nothing just happens. We think about it, we have a particular emotional response to that thought, and then we make plans, again, back to the thinking, we make plans to carry it out. Sometimes that little scenario I said could happen like that, right? You say, well, I got in a fight, and I don't know, we, we got in a fight, and it just happened just instantly. Yeah, our minds, our emotions are amazing, faster than any computer, and it drives us to action. So let's talk about this unity a bit here. We have a shared story. We're adopted. We have a shared story, and we are part of God's family. We weren't part of God's family, but now we are because of Jesus Christ and because of the, the repentance and faith he gave to us by his grace. We reacted to that. We reacted to that enlightening of our minds, and we, we examined ourselves, and we said, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I need the Lord. And we prayed and we asked God to forgive us and to save us. We have a shared story. And I thought about putting born again slash adoption, but it just seems confusing. We're all adopted into God's family. The process is through the spiritual new birth, but, but legally and functionally, we weren't in the family of God, but now we are. Families have different cultures, do they not? One of the, the cultures, the preeminent culture in the whole family is we all pull together. So if you're part of the whole family and we're getting ready to do something major and we call you, there can't be, oh, yeah, I got a conflict on my schedule. Oh, well, we'll just move the date. So there is no conflict. We rally around the mission and we all get it done. It's just the culture of our family. You say, well, wait till your adult children move away. Well, there's plane tickets, so, you know, there's that. We share, we have a shared devotion. We have a loyalty to Christ because of what what he did for us. And as we sing these songs about what Jesus did for us, doesn't it stir your heart? Remember the men on the road to Emmaus as this man opened up the scriptures to them and they realized it was the Christ. He said, did not our hearts burn within us? There's something that's been changed in you when you became a Christian. It's not something you hang on to by your own power. It's something God does in you and sustains in you and sustains in me. He creates in us a devotion to him and by extension a devotion to each other correct? When we hear about one of the beloved in Christ suffering, makes us sad, doesn't it? Provokes us to pray. When they rejoice, we rejoice with them. Genuinely, we rejoice because it's something God is doing in us. It's something that he's he's done to us. It's made us different. We're not like we were anymore. This concept of Claiming to be a Christian but never changing 
from the way you were as a lost person is a myth and a deception. It's a terrible deception. It's a dangerous one. Pastor Jeff is going to be preaching from Hebrews. There's some scary stuff in Hebrews about those that taste of this spiritual thing and then reject it. God puts in his beloved a devotion, a loyalty to him and so loyalty to each other and a loyalty to his mission, the gospel. We need to get the gospel out. It pleased God to choose the foolishness of preaching and witnessing to, to get the gospel out. Say, well, why couldn't God just write it in the clouds? Well, he can write it in the clouds, but sometimes he wants us to type it. God uses means to accomplish the work of the gospel. And this partnership is important to that. I would say it's crucial to it. Everything else is secondary to it. Why does the church exist? The church exists to worship him and make disciples. It's a cycle. Worship God, make disciples, so you have more worshipers. Also, we have a shared culture. And that's a culture of sacrifice. I mentioned that earlier as it relates to the whole family. And I'm sure we all have this sense of family comes first. We put our families first. It's not selfish. It's not abnormal. It's just the way God made us. Well, we're a family. We're the family of God. We're part of his family. And with that becomes a culture, a shared culture, that is different than the world. It's always funny to me when you examine businesses as they try to pretend they're like a church. We just want you to know we're, we're so, we love our employees. And we just want to nurture them and, and see we have a ping pong table we've set up over here. And, and that just proves it. it. It's all a mirage. Because when you're not useful to them anymore, they just get rid of you. Now you say, well... Is that harsh? Maybe. It's just life, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're contracting your time for money. And when that, no, when that equation doesn't work out anymore, something has to change. But it doesn't really work that way in God's, in God's family. This is different. This culture cannot be broken by human beings. It could be damaged, but it can't be utterly broken. Because it's established by God. It is, it is continued by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in everyone's lives. It's something that will achieve its objective. So not only do we have a unity of mind and emotion, but this this thought process is characterized by humility. It's characterized by humility. Look in uh, verse number 3 and 5. It says, Do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in all humility count others more significant than yourselves. So apparently the problem that was mentioned in chapter 1 is maybe just bigger than one thing. It's potentially an ongoing problem that has created some strife. We're not sure because Paul is very tender in the book of Philippians and he doesn't go into um, some of the details, name and names, and things that they're doing. He doesn't go into real uh, fine detail in this. But he says something that's profound. He says, but in all humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That literally means, that word significant really means like a higher status. Like, if you were to kind of put it in the realm of prioritizing, it means like they're more important than you because they have a higher status. 
kind of, that's the kind of thought process it carries. This person is important. Look more significant than you. They're your boss. They're your, they're your king. They're your president. It's somebody that's deemed important. God wants us, if the world thinks that way, in their lost condition, God wants us to understand. He wants us to have that same kind of love and self-sacrifice and humility as it relates to other people. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. There's that that unity we have in Christ again. It's yours. You can do this. And I'm glad that the Bible doesn't simply say, and I talked about this with Chris before the sermon, it's not that God just casts aside, he just say, just cast aside all of your human concerns. So don't worry about taking care of your family, don't worry about, no, the Bible doesn't say that because that's not normal, is it? And in respects, that would be sinful uh, to not care for the, the interest that God has put into your life. It's not what he's saying here. He's not saying cast aside what you're responsible for and only focus on other people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying expand your responsibilities to include not just your own interest, but also the interest of others. Can you do that today? Are you doing that today? Some people say, well, we, you know, we really want to get, I really want to have, you know, get my, would love to have my, my life, my spiritual life back in the order where it needs to be. Starts with thinking that generates an emotion that must result in action. Those three things are tied together. If you do those three things, that will propel you forward. This thinking, this way of thinking is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not foreign to you. You're part of the family. You're in the partnership. This is yours. It belongs to you. Lay claim on it. Well, how do you think Jesus thought when he was on this earth? What were the results of his thinking? Now, what occupies the majority of our thinking? Remember what they did early on in his ministry? They tried to make him a king, right? What did he do? No. Why? Wasn't time yet. And besides that, he was already a king. King of the universe. Some localized recognition is a step down. He kept his eye on what was supposed to be done. What? The will of God for our salvation. Why did Jesus condescend? Why did he come here? He had a mission and he stuck to it. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. So we have another apostle echoing the same words of Paul. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Is it really more blessed to give than receive? Maybe, maybe not. If you're lost, 
I don't really see that playing out too much in lost people's thinking. They're more blessed to receive than to give. See, we're getting back to this issue of culture. What is Christian culture like? Is it like the world or is it different? Is your family culture more like Christian culture or more like the world? Now, in the South, the old thing they used to say is, now you got to meddling. But that's really what God's word does in our hearts, right? And in our minds. It gets in there and it divides things. It splits up that hard, calloused thought process. And it says, no, you need to be thinking about what I want. You think about who you are. Think about what was done to get you to where you are. And what is your mission? What does God want you to do? Not only is this partnership give us unity of mind and emotion, it's not only does it, is it characterized by humility, but it, this is big. It exchanges earthly glory for eternal reward. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for this series on heavenly rewards. The heavenly rewards cannot be divorced from what we give up in this earth. But can't you do both? Probably not. Maybe there's select people that that have just unique gifts that can achieve it all. But if you dig into those people's lives, you're going to find them, people that are professing that that's what their life is like, usually they're really a wreck on the inside. You have to choose. What does the scripture say about the lust for money? Can't serve two masters. You say, well, what are you saying, George? You just sell my company and give it all to the poor. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible says take care of those things that are yours, but also make room for some other people, right? It's expand what you're doing. The problem human beings have is we want to focus in on what's just our own to the exclusion of everything else because our goal is different. The goal is not partnership in the gospel. The goal is the world's goal. Get all I can. And once I've packed these barns up, I'm going to tear these barns down and build bigger barns. Then I'm going to say to myself, eat, drink, and be merry. You've got goods laid up for many years. We know the story. God says, you're a fool because tonight I'm requiring your soul of you. Now who are those things going to belong to? They're going to belong to people who didn't work for them. You can't take it with you, and you can't serve two masters. Let's look at verse 6 through 11. I know this is a long passage, but stay with me on this, okay? This is in regarding Christ and an explanation of the thought process of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant... Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Wow. The, the ultimate act of humility and sacrificial obedience. Our Lord Jesus. 
And I love the fact that in the exaltation, he exalts the human name of Jesus. Jesus. They're going to bow the knee to Jesus. And I find it interesting, I was thinking about this this morning, about how God himself condescends, lays aside ruler of the universe, maker of the very men he will walk amongst. And he doesn't come in through the palace as the son of a king, does he? He comes in in a barred manger to relatively poor people as a tradesman. And he's constantly pushing away these earthly pleasures and this earthly honor that's trying to be bestowed on him. He is God. He's condescended to put on flesh and live the life of a man. Self-limitation as a man. Can you imagine that? And what is he here to do? The adulation of men? The amassing of wealth. The Bible says he didn't have a place to put his head. The beginning of his ministry says the Son of Man doesn't have a place to put his head. He didn't come here for that. He came here to redeem sinners. Redeem sinners that deserve what's coming to them. But he came to redeem sinners and to adopt them into his family, take them from outside the family of God and bring them inside his family. A legal adoption that could not be broken. That in the minds of Romans they would have understood that meant full inheritance. That's what he did. That's what he came here to do. The Lord Jesus rules in exaltation above every name. Some people get confused about this because of perhaps their position or their understanding of end times. The Bible is completely, and I'd love to have read a bunch of scripture here, but we 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 won't have time for that. Maybe we'll come back and catch that maybe in lesson number three or four. But the point is that he is king now. And he will return. And he's, he's left this ministry for us. He's left the gospel, and and he's created a partnership around that, and he's coming again. And in between the time he's coming again and what we do on this earth, we have to decide how we're going to use our time. Maybe this year is your last year. Maybe it's my last year. How will I use my time? What do I value the most? So Jesus is exalted for what he did, his humiliation in sacrificial obedience brings exaltation in eternity. While he was on this earth, he was hated, he was conspired against. Think about this, his creation spit on him and beat him and taunted him, his own creation. And with this, there's an urgency, a command given to us We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. You say, well, what does that mean? That sounds confusing. No, it doesn't mean that you're to work, do good works to be saved. Because the context, right? 
He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the redeemed. He's writing to those that are in partnership in the gospel with him. These are born-again believers. What he's telling them is this. You're in a battle with your flesh. God has given you all kinds of grace. He's given you saving grace. He's given you uh, affirming grace. He's given you the discernment of the scriptures. He's given you the ability to break the bonds of sin in your life and to truly live for him. But it's hard work, is it not? My natural tendency is to be prideful and selfish and rude. I'm sorry to say. I wish it weren't. I've met so many people that are just so sweet and kind. and They always, I, I wish I could be like that. Just naturally. That's like my reaction. It's like sports. I never was, I, I, to make a first team on a sport, I had to practice like 10 times harder than everybody else. I just, clumsy. Not very coordinated. I feel that way sometimes spiritually. I'm just clumsy. I'm just, it's so hard to get there. But that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have a God that loves us, but there's a lot at stake. And there are a lot of pitfalls. And there are a lot of lives that could be ruined when Christians fail in their Christian walk. But the encouragement is this. Look at that last part of verse number 13. He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. As you're working, he's working. He's working to keep you. He's working to sustain you. He's working to enlighten you. This may be the sermon that God has for you, and he expects you to think about it, and alter your life. We hear so many messages, but what do we do with what we think and feel? Do we act? God wants us to act. The Lord Jesus Christ acted, and he stayed focused on that. But the fourth thing is that God wants us to obey as children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's why it's so hard, guys. We're rewarded when we sin and we're punished when we live righteously. (laughs) Why? This world is crooked and perverse. They do not value the same things we value. They have a different culture. It's very different. Don't, Don't crave to be part of the world's culture. It's completely opposite to Christian culture. I remember going into sales, and one of the things that they spent a lot of time on was, was uh, uh, trying to motivate people, obviously, to go out and sell. And I remember one time a, a manager said that, he said this with great pride, that he had a young man and a lot of gifts, but he was very amiable, and, and he, he just didn't seem to have a lot of ambition, and he worked hard, and he met his number, but he knew this guy could do more. And so... He, the thought crossed his mind, I need to get this guy to go out and buy a Cadillac on credit. And so he took him to the Cadillac dealership. He convinced him he's a successful salesperson now. He needs to have a card that proves that, shows that to the world. And the young man, respecting the older man with seeming wisdom, 
Goes out and indebts himself in the Cadillac. And the man, that sales manager turned to me and said, his sales went up 40% trying to pay for that thing. And he was proud of himself for what he did. He thought that was a good thing. They don't think like us. They think very differently than we do. Their value system is different. Their end result is going to be different if they do not repent and believe the gospel. It's important that we obey. Listen to this admonition in verses 12 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the world, to the word, I think it's to the word of life, I've got a misspelling there, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Then he gives us some great examples, right? So we talked about thinking, emotion, acting, right? Thinking, the emotion, acting. Listen to how these people act. Verse 19 through 24 describes the actions of Timothy. I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned about your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Convicting, isn't it? Epaphroditus is another example, verses 25 and 30. My brother, my fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. As Americans, can we really identify with that culture in that church? Think about it. I've been thinking about it a lot. Would I make the list? I don't know that I would. Maybe my, my bar is set much lower. I'm being serious. I think my bar in my mind is set much lower than what God expects from me. I think the first thing that we need to remember is that If you're in Christ, he's begun a work in you, and he's going to complete it. So I'm not a big believer in guilt trip sermons that lead nowhere. Can we do better? Yes, we can do better. But we have to value the, the right things in order to do better, right? The thoughts, what we commit our emotions to, and then our actions. Those have to be aligned. God has begun a good work in me and in you, if you're in Christ. He's going to complete it. Not he thinks he will. He is going to complete it. And it's going to be easy work for him because it's already done. Hard work for us because he wants us to work this out in this life. Saddled with the sin nature, but blessed with the spirit of God and the adoption we have in Christ that makes us belong. We have a belonging to Christ and to this church to these people, to this culture. And we are going to succeed in what we do. We're going to succeed. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you in Christ Jesus? Are you? 
If you're not, that's the first thing you need to think about. Have you repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ? Another thing we need to think about, does your manner of life reflect being in Christ? I had to face that as a young teenager. My life was the life of a rebel, not the life of a believer. And I had to face the fact that what the Bible said Christians do, think and feel, did not match up with me in even in a less than 1%. There was nothing in me that matched up to that. I knew I wasn't in Christ. And that was God working on me, bringing me to himself. His grace, his mercy. The way you live your life is very important. Not that your works save you. The works reveal the way you think, the way you feel, and what you're going to be doing with your life. You cannot separate those. They all work together. So if you're in Christ, you say, Brother George, I know I'm in Christ. And, and I know that my life doesn't reflect it perfectly, but I am actively serving the Lord and trying to serve him by loving others, praying for them, and being open to serve the Lord with my life and with the, with the things he gives me. I want to challenge you to begin thinking about the interest of others more. So it's easy for us to think about the interest of the whole family. I want to blow that out a little bit. What I mean is the interest of people who are not in your family. They're in God's family. It, it's not a hard thing for me to do something for my kids or a sister. See what I'm saying? That's not hard. That's natural to do that. I'm talking about something that encompasses the family of God, that encompasses these lost people that God may have his eye on, his, his heart's intent. They may be one of his, but not yet. They need to have someone take an interest in them with the message of the gospel. Begin thinking about the interests of others. And fourth, ask God to give you an obedient heart to serve others. Ask him to give it to you. You go, George, I just don't feel it. I, I, I got to confess, about five years ago, I just didn't feel it either. And I began praying and saying, God, give me a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. And didn't pray it once because he didn't give it to me right after that. Maybe he wanted to see how determined I was going to be. But I kept praying about it. I kept praying about it. As he opened up a little door of opportunity to serve, I stepped in and I filled it. Well, it didn't matter what it was because I wanted to serve him with my life. We know Paul was a sinner. But I think Paul was farther along in his journey because he was soon to face the Lord. He never did make it out of prison. And in chapter 2, he alludes to that. He thinks, I'm probably not going to make it. But I love in verse number 1 the statement that he made, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he was thinking, he felt it deeply. And it changed the way he lived his life. For me to live is Christ. Not for me to live is Paul. 
for me to live as Christ and to die, if I do it to the point of death, it's gain. (laughs) As a human being looking at the life of another human being, that's what I want to do. And you're going to find the apostles saying in their letters, imitate me. They don't mean over Christ. They mean as they are acting like Christ, imitate them. You know what? We can imitate Paul in this. And we'll close with, with this passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, we're thankful that you love us, that you redeemed us, that you've given us a new life in Christ. You've made us part of your family. That you left heaven and you humbled yourself and you sinless took upon the sins of your people as a sacrifice that we might have life, that we might be adopted into your family. Lord, thank you for the fellowship we have in the Holy Spirit and the fellowship we have in church and for this partnership in the gospel ministry. Lord, I pray that you would direct our hearts and our emotions into action. That you would help us to engage our mind and our motive. You would open our hearts to serve you, open our hearts to share the gospel. And that this would become properly placed in our lives. We're thankful for this great gift bestowed upon us through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the indwelling spirit for God's glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.